<clears throat> nobody. 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 Nobody rage short stories. Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories, where we read the short short stories for you. That's right, and you can find all of our previous episodes on our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. Tonight is episode six of season three, and we are presenting a short story by Michelle Ross called A Mouth is a House for Teeth. It's a tongue twister. Performed for you by Michelle Murphy. A Mouth is a House for Teeth by Michelle Ross. The mother is never to answer the door. If there's a knock, she is to hide. She is to hide herself and the girl and make it appear that no one is home. Unless the knock is the husband's secret knock that only the two of them know, then she is to open the door. There's a keyhole, of course, but the husband doesn't take the key with him when he's away. For starters, Carrying a key is a nuisance. Second, why does he need a key if she is always home? Third, and most important, what if someone who wishes to hurt the girl and the mother steals the key from the husband and lets himself into the house? The outside is dangerous to the girl and by proxy dangerous to the mother. In truth, the outside would be dangerous to the mother even if she were not a mother, but because there is the child, the mother is particularly vulnerable. The only time she should ever open the door, other than when she hears the secret knock that only she and the husband know, is when there is a supply drop. She knows supplies have arrived because she hears the supply box thunk the concrete. She knows the thunk is the supply box because she schedules the delivery of the supply boxes, and always the boxes show up at the exact second they are scheduled. Now, for instance, she hears the scheduled thunk. She looks through the peephole and sees the box, its dimensions distorted by the peephole's fisheye lens. She opens the door. There before her is the box. There before her is also a decapitated head of a rabbit, a few inches from the box. It's shriveled, old. Through the peephole, she assumed it was a rock that had gotten kicked up by wind. Actually, perhaps the truth is she didn't think anything of it at all. Now the dead rabbit's dull black eyes seem to stare at her feet. She looks around, but she sees no one, not even the drone that delivered the box, not even her closest neighbor, who is not a mother of a young child and who therefore is free to go outside as she pleases. What the mother does see is the street the street that goes for miles and miles, and that connects to other streets that go for miles and miles, all of which connect to the interstate system, like a capillary and a network of blood vessels that circuit the country. Follow it, and you can go anywhere. She feels the pull of the street, or maybe this pull is just hormones. She knows better than to trust hormones. Hormones are how she got here in the first place. She drags the supply box into the house and quickly closes and locks the door. She looks through the people at the rabbit head that looks like a stone. The mother doesn't hear the girl approach. 
The girl says, Daddy home? And the mother screams. When the girl cries, the mother hugs her. Sorry, I didn't know you were there. It's just the supply box, see? When is Daddy coming home? The girl asks. Like I told you, baby, I don't know. When's he gonna call? I don't know. Let's see about breakfast, okay? The girl returns to her bedroom, shuts the door. The mother looks out the peephole again. The rabbit head is gone. She puts her hand on the knob, thinks of opening the door to be sure the rabbit head wasn't just blown closer to the door where the fish eye can't reach, but to open the door again when she has already dragged in the supply box would be breaking protocol. As long as they follow protocol, they are safe. The girl is safe. The mother is safe. The husband has told her this hundreds of times. She takes her hand off the door. When the husband is away, there is no certainty of when he will return. There is no certainty he will return at all. This is basic common sense and would be so even if the husband's work wasn't dangerous, which it is. It would be common sense even if he could talk openly to the mother and the girl about his work, which he cannot. Sometimes when the husband has had a drink and is feeling good, he might say, like they do in the movies, I'd tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Then he laughs, or he doesn't. It's been five days now since the husband last called. This is not unusual. When he doesn't call for several days, sometimes the mother imagines the husband is dead. She wonders how much time will pass before someone informs her. Sometimes when he does call, like he does today, when she and the girl are eating blueberry pancakes and says, it's been a really rough week and man, am I exhausted, and doesn't ask how she's doing, she wishes he were dead. When the girl was born, the husband was always finding excuses to leave the house. They needed more diapers. They needed more crackers. The car needed a full detail and wax. She says, before you go, I need to tell you something. There was a rabbit head next to the supply box this morning. What? A decapitated rabbit head, she says. The girl pays close attention. The mother continues. And then, barely a minute later, when I looked out the peephole, the rabbit head was gone. Probably a hawk or a cat, the husband says. That decapitated it or that hauled it away as soon as I dragged in the supply box. Both, he says. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. You're following protocol, she says. Of course. And you have nothing to worry about, he says. The head was shriveled, old, she says. Probably the wind lifted it as easily as a pebble. The husband asks the girl how she's doing. The girl says, I had to get an antibiotic. I had an infection in my leg. The husband, who seconds earlier seemed disinterested in them and in a rush to get off the phone to get dinner, now has a dozen questions. The girl tells him about how she had a cut and the mother left a bandage on her leg for three days, forgetting to change it or check it, and about how when the mother did pull the bandage off, finally, beneath were two large mounds full of pus. Then the next day there were several more pustules on the girl's leg, hence the antibiotic delivered in a supply box. The husband says, did you not bathe her for three whole days? The mother says, 
I forgot. And it's not like she never gets dirty, never leaving the house. I'm just trying to survive. It's not easy doing everything by myself. He says, well, I hope our daughter survives too. The mother says nothing. After they say their goodbyes and hang up the phone, the girl says, I wish I had gotten to see the rabbit head. I wish you had called me. That would be breaking protocol now, wouldn't it? The mother says. Never get to see anything, the girl says. Of course, the mother longs for the girl to grow up differently. She longs for the girl to be safe in the outside world, to roam free the way she once had. So long ago now, it seemed like a dream. But absolutely, she must ensure that the girl follows protocol. Absolutely, she must keep the girl safe. In 1903, a neurologist named Sir Henry Head elected to sever the radial nerve in his left arm for science. He knew that people who experience nerve damage regain sensation over time, and he wanted to map this recovery. What sensations returned first? Second, he and a co-experimenter subjected his left arm to all manner of stimulations over a period of about five years. If the mother knew about Sir Henry Head's experiment, she would likely say that pregnancy and giving birth had been like severing an important nerve. Seven years later, the mother is still recovering what she lost. Only the difference is her experiment is not controlled. There is no mirrored half, like Head's right arm, that preserves her pre-pregnant self. That she chose to get pregnant, wanted a child, despite all the facts, despite having observed other women in the situation she is now, is a testament to the power of hormones, the mother supposes. Hormones make you do things that are not in your best interest. Hormones are not to be trusted. The problem is you can never be certain when your desires and behaviors are ruled by hormones and when they are not. Perhaps when she wishes the husband were dead, that is hormones. Perhaps the moments she feels tender toward him are the products of hormones. Perhaps when the mother stands at the window and watches the neighbor woman walk out of her house in a t-shirt and shorts and sneakers and take off running down the street, no apparent worries about being a woman alone on the street, and the mother longs to abandon the girl and run out after the woman, that is hormones. Perhaps remaining at the window instead of just joining the woman is hormones. Although she is not allowed to leave the house, the mother is allowed to blog. In fact, blogging is encouraged. A routine is good. Having some sort of work besides cleaning house and rearing a child is good, the husband has said. The mother is a baker blogger. If you are a baker blogger, you are de facto a memoirist. Each new recipe comes wrapped in anecdotes from your life. There is much the mother cannot share on her blog, of course, like that the husband is away a lot, because what if among her readers is a man who sees an opportunity and a, a mother and child alone? This concern was suggested by the husband, but she shares the same worry, though she'd never admit it to him. His absence makes her nervous, especially at night when she can't see more than a few feet out the house's windows. They have a treadmill in their garage, and often when the girl is in bed at night, the mother considers going out there and running on it. But the 
garage, though an extension of the house, feels separate from the house. She worries that somehow she'd get locked out there, separated from the girl, and that something terrible would happen. There's plenty she enjoys about the husband's absence, too. That their bathroom is all hers, for instance. No husband bending over the sink to brush his teeth, a mix of toothpaste and saliva dribbling down his chin into the basin. No mysterious wads of toilet paper on the floor next to the trash bin. No stubble hairs on her bar of soap. But these details she cannot share on the blog either, for they would embarrass the husband, hurt his feelings. She does not dare post about the girl either, for there are men who will masturbate to these stories. So the mother has invented a persona for her blog. The baker of her blog is childless and single. This isn't simply an act of omission because she does not mention the girl or the husband. Ergo, they do not exist. No. The baker in the blog tells her readers she's too selfish to have children, too particular and too hermit prone to marry. She posts photographs of gorgeous cakes and cookies and writes about how nothing else in life fulfills her the way baking does. When the mother began the blog, she thought she would blog once a week on Tuesdays. But quickly, baking and blogging about baking became a necessity. Now she bakes and blogs almost daily. If she can't bake during the day, say the girl is sick and she must lie next to the girl to keep her company, then she bakes at night when the girl is passed out from a heavy dose of alcohol-laden cough syrup. They throw a lot of baked goods into the garbage chute. The mother thinks often of that fairy tale, Sweet Porridge, about a poor woman and her child who live alone. They have nothing to eat until the child goes into the forest and an old woman gives her a magic pot. When the girl says, little pot, cook, the pot makes sweet porridge. When she says, little pot, stop, the pot stops. One day, while the girl is away, the mother commands the pot to cook, and it does. Only the mother does not know the command to make it stop. So the pot cooks and cooks until the whole town is buried in porridge. Does the mother drown in all this porridge? The story does not say. As the girl steps out of the bath and the mother presses a towel to the girl's wet hair, the girl says, I want to cut you open and wear your skin like a house. The mother plays a game with the girl sometimes, a game she learned from her own mother, in which they use a house as a metaphor for everything and anything that contains, as in a sock is a house for a foot, a lock is a house for a key, a mouth is a house for teeth. The girl leans into the mother the way she always does after a bath, wraps her wet limbs around the mother. She's so small, so easy to break. And the outside is full of men who wish to break her. Is it any wonder the girl should want to hide in her mother's skin? The mother worries about the girl's fear. The girl has never played with another child. She has never seen another child except on television or in books. The girl will not know how to be with other people. She will be afraid, suspicious, awkward. The mother often watches the neighbor, pruning her roses or backing out of the driveway in a car, sunglasses concealing her eyes. The mother once did these things before she got pregnant. She could have chosen to remain unpregnant, unmothered, free. She was never comfortable in the world, though. 
She wonders if this has much to do with why she became pregnant. Maybe it was less hormones, more fear. What she couldn't have known was that there is plenty to fear in here, too. All mothers must fear at some point that their children may hurt them. That's putting it too mildly. All children do hurt their mothers. They tear their way out of their mother's bodies, after all, unless the doctor cuts into the mother instead of the child's head and shoulders. And then there is the biting of her nipples, the exhaustion when the child cries in the middle of the night, the first time the child hits the mother, the first time the child says to the mother that she hates her or that the mother's stupid or ugly or unlovable. Such injuries are accepted as normal. Children separating their identities from that of the mother, psychologists say, may be cruel. It's a necessary violence. The mother, being a woman, has come to expect a certain level of cruelty and violence. Like outside, when men on the street have yelled at her before she got pregnant and left the outside, that she looked like she needed to be fucked. Or when a man on the street grabbed her ass. Or when a man in the office she used to work in would talk over her again and again in meetings. Or when the husband, before he became the husband, told her once that no one else would ever love her like he loves her. A declaration he seemed to think should make her feel loved. But what she heard was that she ought to feel lucky he bothers with her because nobody else would. Still, there are many moments with the girl when the mother wonders, is this something she should heed? Like when the girl found a small lizard in the house and she made a leash for the animal with some yarn and tied it to the coffee table and the lizard promptly strangled itself. There are many other moments having nothing to do with the girl, presumably, which also prompt the mother to wonder if she should take heed. The decapitated rabbit head, for instance. The mother must make a choice in these moments. Either she takes heed and is afraid and more often than not, her husband dismisses her fear, or she does not take heed and risks being guilty of being heedless. The next time the mother hears the thunk of the supply box, she looks out the peephole, half expecting to find another decapitated rabbit head, but instead there is something a bit larger, rounder, something she can't quite make out through the fisheye lens, Dog shit, perhaps? Protocol does not include anything about unidentifiable from the peephole objects accompanying a supply box. She takes a breath and opens the door. She sees that the object she couldn't identify through the peephole is a rattlesnake coiled against the side of the box. Protocol entails that the mother quickly open the door, quickly drag the supply box into the house, and quickly shut the door. Protocol does not include anything about rattlesnakes. The mother knows rattlesnakes are not eager to strike, that they do so only when startled or threatened. But quickly dragging the box will surely startle or threaten the rattlesnake. She shuts the door. She counts to three. She looks out the people. The snake is still there. 
Perhaps if she drags the box slowly, slowly, the snake will not startle or feel threatened. She could hook the top of the box with the rake from the garage. She could wear boots as she does this. She could wrap leftover scraps of carpet around her legs with duct tape. Perhaps the thickness of the carpet will be enough to prevent the snake's fangs from reaching her skin. The girl is watching TV. She is so entranced that she pays no attention to the mother going in and out of the garage, the noise of the duct tape. When the mother is finally ready, about 15 minutes later, she opens the door. The snake is gone. The mother throws stale macaroons around the box to be sure. No movement. No sounds aside from the thunks of the macaroons. The mother puts down the rake and quickly drags in the supply box. She quickly shuts the door. She worries she imagined the snake. She worries about the break in protocol. She worries that the snake is real and one among many creatures trying to get inside the house. She thinks of the tree outside her bedroom. Years ago, when it was a much smaller tree she and the husband brought home from the nursery in a black plastic pot, that pot had been like a diaper the way it held the soil around the tree's roots. She planted the tree closer to the house than she ought to have. She didn't understand then about roots, how far they spread, the damage they can do. She imagines the tree's roots pushing up against the house's foundation, cracking the foundation, like cracking an egg into a bowl. Sometimes, late at night, when the house is otherwise quiet, she thinks she hears the tree's roots pawing beneath the house. In the fairy tales, the mother reads the girl before bed. The monsters are often mothers, stepmothers, birth mothers, old hags, same difference. In the horror films, the mother watches some evenings when the girl is asleep. The monsters are often children, adopted children, biological children, little men who are mistaken for children. The girl is often startling the mother. At night, when she wakes from a nightmare and walks into the kitchen while the mother is baking, in the mornings when the mother is drinking coffee and doesn't realize the girl is up, the girl treads silently, no warning. Or like now, the mother walks right by the girl where the girl is curled up on the sofa and the mother doesn't see the girl until the girl speaks. The mother screams. After the girl stops crying, she said, why did you scream? The mother says, thought I was alone. The girl looks confused and also frightened. Why would you think that? The husband calls while the mother is licking a thin icing from her fingers. A boiled orange cake is baking in the oven. The girl is in a television trance. The mother thinks that perhaps the television has sucked the girl out of her body that the girl's body is an empty husk, the way she sits so still, eyes fixed. A television is a house for a girl, she thinks. But then the girl laughs at something on the screen and the mother is assured the girl is still snug inside her own skin. Instead of immediately giving the phone to the girl as she often does, the mother tells the husband about the rattlesnake and about what the girl said about wanting to slit her open and wear her skin. The husband says, she says funny stuff, doesn't she? Have you followed protocol? The mother says. 
I couldn't follow protocol precisely when the rattlesnake was next to the supply box. I, I had to close the door and come up with a plan for how to get the box. So I had to open the door twice that morning. I had to let the box sit for a bit outside. The husband says, hmm. The mother says, what could I have done differently? Offered a leg for the snake to bite? The husband says, Nothing like this all these years, and then a rabbit head, and then a snake. Doesn't seem possible. The mother says, are you calling me crazy? I'm saying it's probably nothing. There's nothing to worry about. It's been five weeks. Now, when are you coming home? The husband says, you know, I don't know. And even if I did, I couldn't tell you. The mother says, I don't want to live like this anymore. What does that mean? I might as well not even have a husband. The husband says, well, maybe I'll die on the job and you won't have a husband anymore. And then you'll get a fat insurance check. Won't that be nice? The husband laughs. There are two types of baker bloggers. First, there are the bakers who invent they create brand new sweets the world has never tasted before. Or they reinvent classics, making them truly their own, revamped recipes you could not possibly confuse with the originals. These baker bloggers are rare. Second, there are the bakers who purport to be inventors, who present recipes as their own, despite that said recipes are entirely generic. They get away with it, perhaps, because their readers aren't concerned with originality. They just want a good recipe made easily reproducible by beautiful photos and clear instructions. This is the most common type of baker blogger. The mother is neither of those types. She is a baker who bakes other people's recipes, classic recipes, without pretending she has made them on her own. The mother would like to invent recipes of her own, but she doesn't feel ready yet. There is still so much she hasn't made. There is still so much to learn. The idea of wasting ingredients on failures causes her stress. Worse, what if she were to present to the world something as her own that is not? Someone with the username Black Eyed Sue comments on the mother's blog one evening. Why do you only ever bake other people's recipes? The mother writes back. I'm apprenticing. Black Eyed Sue writes. This blog is six years old. The husband has been gone 39 days when the girl says, I want to die. When the mother asks her why, the girl says, because I'm a horrible, horrible girl. The mother is quiet. She thinks of the lizard. She thinks of her own flesh sliced open like a big potato. And then she says, you are a wonderful girl and nobody is perfect. We all do things we're ashamed of. Did you do something that you're ashamed of? The girl repeats, I want to die. Then she says, I want everyone to die. I want the whole world to die. The mother feels sad and scared and strangely, the tiniest bit proud. 
the girl has always been a smart, sensitive child. The mother has always taught the girl to express her emotions. And who hasn't felt this way at some time or another? On the other hand, is this one of these moments in which she ought to take heed? She worries about her culpability. She loves the girl, but she has never enjoyed playing with her. Playing with the girl is, in fact, almost the worst way to spend her time that she can imagine. When the husband is home, she'll say to him, you play with our daughter and I'll do the dishes. The husband thinks he's getting the better deal. The mother thinks she's getting the better deal. At night, when the mother takes the girl to bed, the girl clings to the mother like she's all that's keeping the girl from falling from a steep cliff. Perhaps the girl does not feel secure because the mother so clearly prefers baking and chores to playing with the girl. When the mother does spend time with the girl, it is usually to watch movies. And usually she has wine in hand because the movies her daughter enjoys are mostly boring. And even if they're not boring, the mother has watched them with the girl five times already. Also, the mother frequently zones out while the girl is talking. Sometimes the girl catches her. Mama, did you hear what I said? Just that morning, this had happened. Instead of listening to her child, the mother had been thinking about how she misses orgasms. She is perfectly good at delivering them herself, sans the husband. The problem is the girl is in her bed every night. She won't even start the night in her own bed. The mother could take a vibrator to her child's bedroom or the hall bathroom, lock the door and be done within a few minutes. But the idea of masturbating in either of those locations is wholly unappealing. The most appealing location for masturbation other than in the privacy of her own bedroom is the sofa under a throw while she reads a book or watches television. But there's no way to lock her bedroom from the outside to ensure the girl does not come out. The mother says, well, I certainly hope you don't die anytime soon. This is true. But the mother considers that there would be some consolation in being able to leave the house and being able to mourn outside in the sunshine and the fresh air. That evening, while the girl is in the bath, the mother stands at the window and watches the woman next door throw a stick across her lawn to a small brown dog. The mother has never seen the dog before. The woman must have brought it home that very day. The mother thinks of the woman driving to a shelter, walking from her car to the shelter, choosing whatever dog she wants. The dog fetches the stick, but the dog does not bring the stick back to the woman. The dog has not yet learned this game. The woman has to run after the dog and take the stick from its mouth. She throws the stick again. She calls to the dog. The mother hears the woman calling, Muffin! Muffin! The mother taps the glass then. She imagines her and the woman smiling and waving at each other. But the woman does not turn. The mother taps harder. The woman does not turn. Then the girl taps the mother's hip and the mother startles. She falls backward into the console table next to the window. Her thigh strikes the corner of the table, forming a bruise that turns blue-black by morning. There is no more sugar 
or wine in the cupboard. No more eggs in the refrigerator. The stack of toilet paper, dish soap, coffee, yogurt, chicken broth, oatmeal, hand cream, frozen mangoes, coconut oil, waxing strips, and sea salt truffles is low. Although the supply boxes are easy to order and have always arrived promptly, the mother has never allowed her stocks to get so low before ordering reinforcements. Some part of her has never fully trusted that she'd be able to get what she needed when she needed it. And with the husband away and impossible to contact, what would she do if a box didn't arrive? There's a grocery store barely two miles away. The woman next door shops there. The mother knows because sometimes the woman forgets her cloth bags and removes from the trunk of her car paper bags bearing the store's name. The mother no longer owns a car. If there were an emergency that required immediate medical care, they would call paramedics. If necessary, the paramedics would take the mother and the girl to the hospital. There's even a phone number engraved into a locket hanging from the mother's neck. Even if the mother were unconscious, the paramedics would open the locket and call the number. It is an emergency number to be used only in an emergency. A stranger, not the husband, would answer and would notify the husband immediately, at which point he would either return immediately or make some other preparations to make sure the mother and the girl are looked after, kept safe. Running out of food and no supply box arriving, would that constitute an emergency? when a grocery store is just a couple miles away. As she makes a list of the items they need, she pictures the rabbit head, the rattlesnake, tree roots like fingers scratching underneath their house, poking at the foundation. The scariest movie the mother ever saw was Hitchcock's The Birds. What made it so scary was its lack of explanation for why the birds attacked. When the husband calls, she does not tell him about the girl's latest talk of killing her and the entire human population. She hands the phone to the girl. While the girl talks to the husband, the mother studies her list. Should she order pistachios, finally tackle a baked Alaska, the dessert she's been most intimidated by all these years, the one that she told herself would be the finale of her apprenticeship? Because if she could manage to seal in the semifredo with a sturdy barrier of meringue and torch the ice cream cake without creating an oozing mess, she could do anything. Couldn't she? She hears the girl say, I didn't see a snake. Then she was banging on the window last night. The mother takes the phone from the girl. What are you doing? She says to the husband. I just asked her if you guys had seen any more rattlesnakes, he says. I just wanted to know how the two of you are doing, just making sure you're both okay. Just, she says. Then the mother tells him about how the other day the girl said she wanted the mother to die. The girl looks at her feet. Children don't have much of a filter, the husband says. I bet you wish sometimes I'm dead. You just don't say it. Oh, wait. You have, the mother says. I never said that. Perhaps not so directly. She said she wished everybody in the whole world was dead. The girl starts crying. 
Angela, he says. She's six. Then, I can't make any promises, as you know, but there's a good chance I may be home within the week. Maybe much sooner. I can't say for sure, though, as you know. She says nothing. Did you hear me? She hangs up the phone, turns off the ringer. She puts her arm around the girl, says to her, everything's okay. She gives the girl one of the giant almond horn cookies with sprinkles she'd made the day before. Then while the girl watches television, the mother eats three. She puts in her order for a supply box, schedules it for dusk because she has never scheduled a supply box for dusk. And so she surmises that whoever or whatever is menacing her will be caught off guard. 20 minutes before the box is to arrive, the mother paces near the front window. She watches the woman next door pull into her driveway. Another car pulls in behind her car. A man steps out. He's tall and handsome and wearing a forest green pullover sweater. The husband owns a sweater much like it, only his is more blue. Or maybe not. The more she considers the color of that sweater, the less sure she is of the color. The mother thinks it can't be cold enough out to warrant a sweater. Not when so few of the leaves have fallen from the trees. That makes her think she doesn't like this man. The way the man stands there, waiting for the woman to walk to him, bothers her too. Even the way he puts his arm, his hand on her arm, like he's laying claim. The mother watches them disappear into the house. Five minutes before the box is to arrive, the mother leans over the back of the sofa to kiss the top of the girl's head. The girl smells like popcorn. When the mother hears the thunk of the supply box, she is in position. She take a, takes a deep breath. She leans into the people. She almost makes a sound, but quickly covers her mouth. There is a man at her door, or at least she thinks the figure is a man. She neglected to turn on the porch light, and it's just dark enough out now that the figure is more silhouette than flesh. His feet blend in with the supply box, so his calves appear rooted. The lights are off on the inside of the house as well, so she knows that even if the fisheye lens were large enough that he could see more than her eyeball through its opposite end, all he could possibly see now is blackness. She breathes quietly, watches the figure lean in too, until he's so close that his head blocks out the faint traces of sunlight. Is he pressing himself against the door? She places her palm against the door, then her entire body. She wonders if she might feel the figure's breath and his blood pumping if she listens with her whole body. When the knock comes, it reverberates through her bones, a code she tries to decipher. The knock seems to emerge at the small of her back to thrum there. Another knock. Only this time the knocking seems to be coming from both the door and from behind her. She realizes that what she feels at the small of her back is not the knock that moves through the door and into her bones, but a finger. The girl's finger. It's me, a voice whispers. But whether it comes from the outside or from the inside, she isn't sure. 
The mother stiffens. If she stands very still, maybe no one will know she is there. The end. Ooh, great job, Michelle. Oh, oh my, my goodness. goodness, Michelle. Ooh. You are freaking brilliant. Wow, I just feel oh. like so um, oh my gosh. impressed you, by I'm that. I'm so impressed. Like, yeah. holy crap. Like, if there was an award for, like, YouTube reading. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love oh this story. Goodness. This is 